to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has worked at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Each episode, we will answer questions from you, our listeners. To learn more about the show, submit a question, access educational material, or even take a quiz, you can visit us on hightruths.com. Hey, everyone. This is our exciting third and very special CADCA-sponsored High Truths episode. And today, we're going to be talking about alcohol as the greatest of all drugs of addiction. People can have an OUD, opiate use disorder, CUD, cannabis use disorder, nicotine use disorder, or the A number one, alcohol use disorder. And we will also see the world reach of CADCA, our sponsor, especially in Latin America. CADCA is one of my favorite world organizations. Really, everyone loves CADCA, the Community Anti-Drug Coalitions of America. Every year, they invited me to speak at their National Leadership Forum and Mid-Year Training Institute. CADCA is known for their signature training events. The conferences are one of my favorites because of the engaged prevention professionals who attend to ask questions, learn, and implement the best ideas that will improve their hometown. I cherish our prevention professionals because they are not enough of them, and yet our future, our youth, depend on their work. CADCA represents over 5,000 community coalitions that involve individuals from key sectors, including schools, law enforcement, youth, parents, healthcare, media, and more. CADCA has members in every U.S. state and territory and in more than 30 countries around the world. The CADCA coalition model emphasizes the power of community coalitions to prevent substance misuse through collaborative community efforts. CADCA believes, and I certainly agree, that prevention of substance use and misuse before it starts is the most effective and cost-efficient way to reduce substance use and its associated costs. Benjamin Franklin would certainly agree an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And wouldn't it be nice if we can prevent alcohol use disorder in the United States? and around the world. We will start our discussion today with a question from our CADCA listener. Hi, Dr. Leth. I am a fan of your podcast and I am from South America. I have a lot of concerns around alcohol use and the problems it is causing in my community. It is very social accepted and people don't see it as an issue. What can I do to get people where I live to recognize the impact that this is having on our children's families and community? Thank you. Thank you so much, Fabrizia Barella from CADCA International Team for that question that will inspire our discussion for today. CADCA has an expert for almost everything. And this CADCA question is answered by the alcohol and Latin America CADCA expert, Eric Siervo. Eric serves as the vice president of the international department at CADCA, where he oversees directs, supervises, and monitors quality standards for the daily operation of CADCA's training programs to develop community coalitions in foreign countries. During his 13 years of service at CADCA, he has been responsible for the development, administration, implementation, i.e., you know, running the show of CADCA's international training delivery system and international operations leading to the establishment of over 300 community coalitions in 28 countries, five continents, and seven languages. The world reach touches 11,500 trained volunteers. 
Mr. Siervo is CADCA's main point of contact for international government organizations. So if someone's listening from across the world and you want some world-famous CADCA training, you'll want to talk to Eric. Prior to coming to CADCA, Eric worked on underage drinking, tobacco, and served as the program director for the National Latino Council on Alcohol and Tobacco Prevention. Eric earned his master's degree in international education from Framington State University, an undergraduate degree in international relations, and a minor in business from the University of Mobile. Eric Siervo's bio is included in the High Truth show notes. Eric Siervo, welcome to High Truths. Dr. Lev, it's a real pleasure to be here with you today. Uh, thank you for the opportunity uh, to really speak uh, about an issue that's uh, near and dear to my heart, um, especially as it relates to alcohol use uh, in Latin American countries where I've had the experience uh, through uh, well over a decade uh, to work on the ground to with communities to address this issue. And that is very interesting. I, th- I think people don't realize that CADCA works with all types of drugs of addiction and that you really have a global impact. Eric, what is your journey to work with CADCA um, on prevention? Um, you specialize in alcohol. Latin America, is that run in your family or how did you come to that? So, well, Dr. Dr. Lev, I'm going to do my best to, to to be as brief as I can on that because it is an ongoing story and it starts in Latin America. I found myself in the late 90s and early 2000s living in Latin America, living in uh, Nicaragua specifically. I initially went down there for uh, a month. It turned into two months. Uh, And as some of these things go, uh, met a a girl, fell in love, got married, and that turned into five years. Uh, But during my time living there in Nicaragua, uh, it really... Uh, kept impacting me, things that I would see and hear on the news here in the United States. I actually saw firsthand from alcohol-related traffic fatalities uh, to uh, the way uh, that uh, uh, religious uh, patron saint holidays kind of got commercialized into an excuse for drinking, uh, as well as uh, celebrations like Easter, where uh, I remember one year it was reported 30 people drowned uh, and, uh, you know, it was all related to people being inebriated, drunk and uh, and getting in the water. Uh, but it was just the lack of, um, uh, how should I put it, uh, people didn't perceive it to be an issue, right? Uh, alcohol drinking was completely normal. Uh, there were no uh, hours of, uh, you know, to stop serving alcohol. And uh, when you go to a bar or restaurant, it's served by the bottle. And if you're sitting outside and the bar closes, they'll make sure you've got plenty of ice and uh, drinks to mix your liquor with and stay as long as you need to. Uh, but there were also no restrictions for youth. So you could send a child uh, in to, to, uh, to purchase alcohol. And, uh, and I'd say uh, as far as drinking and driving, it might have been viewed as more of a, a highly encouraged sport where, you know, you're not, you know, if you can't, uh, but you can't hold your liquor. And so it's very much in the culture. And when I say in the culture, it wasn't just, um, you know, uh, everyday people, but even at, at the levels of government, they just really wasn't perceived as an issue. Uh, and the alcohol industry also was very rampant in promoting uh, their products. But I think uh, finally where it hit home for me the most in terms of things I saw throughout the years, uh, I spent some time working as a, an athletic director for an American school. And what really drove me down in Nicaragua in the first place was that my aunt and uncle lived there and my cousins were there. Uh, and uh, some of the students at the school got into an, uh, 
uh, an accident and uh, they were inebriated and driving and uh, ended up having to work with one of the students to do their physical therapy. Um, and uh, this was somebody who was a friend of my cousin's, super bright kid, could have gone to any school and he had to learn how to pick up a ball again. And I think for me, that was like the last straw where I decided uh, I want to do something about this. And, you know, where am I going to get the experience? I moved back to the United States and uh, started my career on uh, substance use prevention and working initially uh, for um, uh, for different uh, agencies or group along, groups along the way until 2007. I started working uh, at CADCA uh, under the international department. But prior to that, I had been working on alcohol-related issues in the United States among migrant populations and also uh, working with two coalitions in the Washington, D.C. area, the D.C. Uh, Tobacco Coalition and um, the uh, National Capital Coalition to Prevent Underage Drinking, where we really got to uh, do some fantastic work where the rubber meets the road and changing policies, practices, and systems to really have uh, population-level outcomes in reducing uh, alcohol use and the impact that it has on communities. So that's a remarkable, um, again, example of, of passion. And uh, we've had a lot of example with people have within their own life, um, a tragedy or a negative example, and they turn it around and make the world a better place because of that. And Eric, that's exactly what you're doing. That's amazing. And you also mentioned something that struck me when you talked about holidays, holy holidays, um, that people have changed it around to um, all about drinking instead of the real meaning of the holiday. And I, I say that because today um, we're recording on a Jewish holiday called Purim. And it's the story of Queen Esther. Um, and uh, you read the whole Megillah. It's, 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 you know, it's a meaning, it's a spiritually meaningful holiday, but people make it uh, all about drinking and getting drunk and have been, you know, <laughs> uh, instead of the real meaning. So when when you said that about the holidays, that, you know, right, it made me think of today. Well, how, how, go ahead. I was just going to say St. Patrick's Day is right around the corner. So <laughs> we know what that's about here, right? So. Right. Is it about St. Patrick and, and the history behind the saint? <laughs> so how big a problem is alcohol in our country and with youth? Well, I've got to tell you that here in the United States, it, uh, you know, it continues uh, to be a problem uh, in terms of uh, alcohol use among among youth. I think um, we've made great strides uh, in the direction compared to where we were in the 1980s in terms of uh, passing certain policies that uh, certainly reduce the impact, like increasing the drinking age. Uh, but we've also seen uh, throughout the decades, too, a lot of enforcement around um, sales of alcohol to minors uh, and ensuring that there's consequences uh, for the sale of alcohol to minors. Also, we've seen uh, through the years, uh, laws and policies get passed at the state level for uh, drinking and driving. So many states now have zero tolerance policies and that's uh, you know a whole host of policy interventions that are making a difference. Um, you know, the, the, the issues uh, still remain. It still needs to be worked at. And as speaking to an expert in the field, as you know, the minute we start, stop, you know, thinking we've, we've addressed an issue and now, you know, we can relax on it, right? Uh, things start to increase again. So, you know, these types of measures need to, you know, continue to happen and from community to community across the country. Uh, but there's also, you know, the piece from from a societal perspective, from in terms of where youth, uh, you know, are able to access alcohol, 
you know, uh, commercial, but then there's the social aspect of it in terms of what that looks like uh, in the home uh, and how to address those issues. And the reality of it is we may have some common factors across the country, but the way they manifest themselves in local communities varies uh, very much. So we do need to make sure that, you know, we're not taking on this issue a one size fits all approach, but that there's uh, you know, customized plans at the local level to address the issue in terms of, you know, where the rubber meets the road in terms of people where people uh, live and have to raise their raise their children and families in the community context. And 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 alcohol is is really the largest, uh, so large. Sometimes people like ignore it and they talk about opiates, but really alcohol is the biggest uh, addiction and problem in our country by far almost double puts all the other addictions together and and uh, to equal what we have with alcoholism so if we have like 20 million americans living with uh, an an addiction uh, about half of that is from from alcohol and uh, i always see that in the emergency department because our uh, hallway beds are full of the worst cases of alcoholism a very very sad show of the human condition of, um, you know, from a homeless person who's been had alcoholism their entire life to a young college student who is uh, in the emergency department um, with vomit all over their hair, um, um, looking like a mess when um, they thought they were going to go out and have a good time. And when they leave the department and they're feeling better, I ask them, did you, did you have a good time? <laughs> um, but we've made some progress with with youth alcohol and and with uh, youth drug driving we you know i uh, really thanks to cadca and your prevention messages um you're making a change so what's the best way to reach uh youth and prevent alcohol use before it's legal you know when it comes to working when it comes to you know engaging youth on on this issue uh there's there's a number of uh ways to go about doing it you know traditionally you've seen a a lot of services and, and programs that go directly to youth to, you know, talk about the dangers of alcohol. But when it comes to the work ADCA does uh, and working with local communities, it's really about mobilizing and organizing local communities to action where they develop uh, policies, where they develop, uh, I should say, uh, plans and strategies based on local data in terms of what's happening, where it's happening, why it's happening, and then they can get to developing strategies. And we do this by engaging, uh, you know, really all the community sectors, bringing uh, local uh, families, parents, along with uh, schools, local government, uh, local businesses, uh, along with the local health sector, uh, justice, um, civic organizations, youth serving organizations, and really bringing everybody to have uh, a dialogue about what's happening and what they can start doing about it. Uh, but another important piece is that youth is a key sector that needs to be a partner at the table. So one of the things that CADCA encourages that we really want to be successful uh, at addressing this issue and protecting our young people, they need to have a seat and a voice at the table uh, to express uh, what the challenges and the risks look like for them so that they can also be a part of crafting the messages and the solutions that are really going to resonate with them. Uh, and if we really want to be... Um, you know, um, successful at this, we need them to participate, uh, to express their voice and opinions and to, to also be agents of change. 
So there's all sorts of medical consequences as a physician. That's what I think of when I think about problems with alcohol. Is that part of the, the training? So uh, typically, uh, not directly because the patient is the the actual environment in which people live and and work and and move around. And however, depending on the issue that uh, coalitions are addressing uh, in their communities, uh, they do have to develop their capacity and their knowledge uh, and their skills around a specific issue. Uh, So uh, to a certain extent, uh, absolutely, they do uh, need to become uh, proficient on the health consequences, uh, but they're also looking at the local conditions in terms of what's bringing the reality that's coming to pass in their local communities. Um, and that's actually where, um, in the work that I've been doing throughout countries in Latin America, where I've seen just so many parallels from one country after the other, uh, in terms of like the areas where coalitions are developing their level of expertise, and that's understanding uh, things like commercial uh, commercial access in terms of, uh, you know, what are the policies and practices that are currently in place? Do they exist? And so, for example, if we're talking about like things like commercial access and understanding uh, the manifestation of uh, the alcohol use issues locally, uh, they start to really educate themselves and build their capacity on uh, hours of sale. What time are people starting to sell and and stop selling? One of the things that we found in Latin America that th- this doesn't exist. There may be national policies, but there's no regulation. Uh, and in fact, there's a lot of clandestine operations where people don't even have licenses to be selling alcohol in the first place, but they do. Uh, and then youth are able to go to these places and purchase alcohol and there's no consequences, uh, even though they're don't even have a license to do it. Um, and uh, just overall, the, the lack of, of regulation uh, in terms of as it relates to alcohol outlets and vendors. So uh, part of that really is looking to understand that reality at the local level and then uh, start to work within you know the legal framework that uh, currently exists. And if it doesn't exist, well then craft and develop policies and practices that does put a regulatory system in place. And that's just on from a commercial aspect perspective, but that's typically the types of things that uh, coalitions start to look at, especially when they're looking at the uh, the patient is, you know, from the environment in which everybody has to live in and work in and grow in. So what is a vaccine in preventing youth uh, problems with alcohol? Dr. Lev, you know, I mentioned uh, just some some of the risk factors around uh, things like access from a commercial perspective, but there's also social access uh, in terms of, uh, you know, what happens locally, uh, you know, and uh, things such as perception of harm or uh, in the case of, of the context, as I was uh, mentioning in Latin America, people have favorable attitudes towards use and low perception of harm across the board. And kind of how does that manifest itself where, you know, at home, uh, you know, parents might not have a problem furnishing alcohol uh, for students. And even, uh, and, and I've seen this in countries around Latin America where even at school events, uh, alcohol is, is sold. Um, and in many cases, uh, you know, uh, this one was the one that really shocked me from country to country, but parents can s- send their kids to to you know, go over to the local convenience store, and we're talking children, not even like adolescents, 
and you know go go pick me up a six pack and they'll sell it to them and 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 bring it there um so when you ask about what it takes what's the vaccine it takes a village right and you know it takes everybody working together to really have a pri- an agenda a priority a plan about what we're gonna do across the board. So when I mentioned earlier about all those sectors and having those people at the table is it really does take a village. Uh, it's not just about parents and families, it's about responsible beverage service and, and uh, local local businesses and merchants doing things uh, the way that they're supposed to responsibly. Uh, it's about, um, you know, uh, building those, um, you know, uh, protective factors. Uh, in terms of uh, attitudes and uh, and views towards uh, towards use and making sure that you know it's not just uh, in the family at home but in the community in which that they have to to move. So you know you really have all of these uh, different uh, domains. It's not just individual decisions, uh, but the kinds of risks that they can come across in their school environment, their family, and the greater community context. And we have to if we really want to have a vaccine and protect youth from this across the board, uh, it takes a village and it takes working at various levels. Uh, and the ultimate level, the one where we can get the most uh, kind of bang for your buck, if you will, is at the policy level, making sure. So this is the biggest issue I see in Latin America everywhere. It's a completely unregulated market. There may be national policies, but there's no regulatory systems in place. So, um, you know, if there's laws are being broken, there's no way to enforce them, right? Because there isn't anybody responsible for to, for handing out fines, for for doing any of those types of activities. And that, that can be even for things like social host ordinance and holding adults accountable for providing alcohol to young people. And uh, so, you know, you, you need that regulatory structure in place. You need not just laws, but laws with teeth. And, um, uh, and it really does take a, a it really does take having it on the agenda locally where everybody looks up and recognizes this is an issue and we're going to, we're going to work on it collectively. So you bring up some, some good points and, you know, adults may want to enjoy their wine or cocktail. Um, that's different than sending your six-year-old to go, <laughs> go pick up a, uh, whatever is, is there, how do you keep kids from wanting to do the same thing as their parents or how do you manage parental modeling? Yeah. And, uh, you know, in, in this case, it really, it, it, there's, there's cultural shift that needs to happen. And, and I say this because again, my, my experience in Latin America has been one where it's just, it's so heightened, right? Like I said, when I was, I grew up here in the States and you hear and see about these things in the media. It was another thing where it was like every day is in front of, in front of your face. And people were like, well, you know, that's just normal. Um, so it does take a cultural shift. Uh, it's a, it's not just a change in attitudes and perceptions, but it's a change in behavior uh, and a change in behavior at the population level. It's not just children and families, but the greater community at large. Um, one of the things that um, I can share with you, kind of an example of this, kind of what it takes, is uh, years ago there was a coalition we started in Honduras, and again there were, was no application of local laws. It was a free for all there. The coalition started to develop its capacity when they started to do their studies to get an idea of how bad the alcohol problems were in their community. They found that, you know, 98% of businesses sold alcohol without any ID checks or anything of that point. 
Uh, and, you know, they didn't want to just go and start trying to arrest people. So they started working with the local businesses to see if they were aware of existing alcohol policies that keep uh, that make it illegal to sell alcohol to minors. And 78 percent of them reported that they didn't know that. So the, the coalition started developing a responsible beverage service training that they worked with their national government that had a program for that. Coalition leaders got trained on how to do that training and they set out to start training. The local municipal government found out about what they were what they were doing and the local government got together with the coalition and changed their policies and practices so that anybody who wants to get a license to sell alcohol has to go through that training, has to get certified, renewed every year. And without the certification on the wall, the local authorities come in and shut them down. Uh, interestingly enough, though, as time progressed, uh, and even now that they're having some of the problems with the pandemic, uh, they've found, uh, you know, in terms of being able to have boots on the ground to go and do the kinds of compliance checks to make sure that local businesses are, are adhering to the local ordinances, they've found that uh, something that didn't exist five years ago, and that's that local everyday people are calling in to report instances when they're seeing uh, local retailers and things not doing things the way that they're supposed to, or if they see alcohol being provided at local community events and those kinds of things. So there has been a behavior change there where they changed the policies, they changed the systems, and over time they had uh, behavior change in terms of how people view and act around the specific issue. And uh, in Latin America, maybe tell our audience, like, which countries are you working with and and how's alcohol use at these Latin American countries different than the United States, or is it? Yeah, uh, so absolutely. Uh, through the years, uh, we, uh, you know, uh, originally we started out in Peru, uh, and then the work grew to encompass a whole host of countries, including um, Mexico, where we had uh, a major initiative, like in Peru. We also did work in Honduras, Guatemala, uh, Costa Rica, Dominican Republic, um, uh, along with Ecuador, where we most recently started working in Argentina, Paraguay, and Uruguay. And in Brazil, where we've got a, a, a fairly uh, uh, large presence of coalitions in four states throughout uh, Brazil. Uh, and you know, that's been our presence in Latin America. And it's interesting because I have, uh, we've got several ex examples of coalitions just doing fantastic work, especially countries like I mentioned in Honduras, Dominican Republic, uh, Brazil, and Peru. But um, yeah, one of the things that we find uh, again and again is uh, the same kinds of things I mentioned in the beginning with uh, my experience in Nicaragua, where uh, it's, it's societal norms, it's cultural norms, uh, and it's a it's a lack of uh, policy implementation at the local level. Uh, there isn't uh, really uh, enforcement mechanisms in place, and um, in many cases, uh, you know that has how has that differed from the United States? Uh, you know, I'd say in, in the case in the United States, we've really um, when it comes to regulation, uh, uh, we've you know, you have local authorities that know what their role is. So for example, I, I think here's, here's, let me just share another story with you that I think here's That's great. great. We love stories. Um, I was in Guatemala working with a coalition. We had all the sectors at the table and the police broke out their code book and said, you know, regulating alcohol is not under our jurisdiction. It's here's our code book. That's not us. 
the municipality said, it's not us either. And then finally it came around to the health sector and they said, I think it's us, but I got to make a phone call. So they left 15 minutes later, they came back, said, okay, here's what I found out. So one, there's no fine. It doesn't exist. So even if we wanted to put a fine and hold merchants accountable, no little piece of paper that you can hand over exists. So we can create that piece of paper, but if we do have that piece of paper, there's no way to actually go pay for that fine. And, and then there's nobody identified responsible for seeing that process through either. So it was like right there, there was no regulatory system in place. And at the same time, people had doubts and questions about whose responsibility is it. Uh, and, you know, the interesting thing, though, is that uh, they did develop plans to go ahead and start passing local ordinances and uh, through working with the local government, put a system in place that they could at least start to address it within their community context. I, I was just going to add to that, too, and it wasn't just uh, the social uh, the, I'm sorry, the, the commercial access that they addressed like that. They also had festivals, again, another patron saint where the alcohol use was rampant, causing all kinds of problems at night. They set aside beer gardens, put hours of sale. They prohibited, they were checking IDs. Kids couldn't go in there. They changed the whole design of their fair. And they saw calls for services, for ambulance, police, uh, they even saw trash diminish, all these other problems that they were having with this community event. Uh, dwindle away. And it was all because of, you know, it, it took a village. They brought everybody together to say, we're going to do this differently. And uh, and so I just wanted to say, and that was just one coalition that did that in, in, in under those both, both of the, those instances. But they had so many beer stands in their fair that when they had calls for services, ambulances couldn't even get in there because there were so many beer stands. And not just around the fair, blocking the entrances to churches, to government buildings, and there's uh, land use uh, uh, policies that prohibit, you know, putting points of sale in front of schools and churches and those kinds of things, but it was happening anyway. So again, the coalition got educated around what the policies and practices were and what the municipal government started to enforce them. And that's that's interesting because I think the number one thing is that you had to identify problems in the community and link them to alcohol. So that that was key because if people don't even realize the link, then there's no motivation to make a change. And then the other thing, bringing ideas and then education of like, okay, learn the laws to figure out which ones need to be changed. But how do people in the local country? Um, um, Take the fact that CADCA and an, an American uh, organization is coming and kind of, you know, giving them advice on what to do in their own country and their own culture. Is, how is that taken? Dr. Lev, we, we work with uh, local communities uh, in a way that we're not just kind of coming in and we're there and uh, by chance, uh, you know, we do have, uh, uh, in most cases, where our, our assistance is requested. Uh, and in many cases, it might be through local non-government organizations. In many cases, it's been local community groups that have found out about what we might have done in a neighboring community and how we can help them. Uh, or in some cases, it's been um, national governments reaching out to our embassies and requesting support uh, that's being leveraged on the ground. And fortunately, we've been able oh, to nice. work with our Department of State to uh, 
to address uh, drug and alcohol issues in all of these countries. Uh, but in any, in every case, though, it's uh, we're invited in. That's number one. And number two, uh, we work with them on on really taking a close look about what's happening and where it's happening in the community, uh, and for them to start to surface. Uh, you know, what they're seeing by equipping them uh, with uh, tools and strategies to to do things like environmental scans or to uh, develop uh, surveys in terms of, uh, you know, uh, doing those surveys in schools or household surveys uh, to find out, you know, either adult perception of what's happening or what uh, youth are reporting in terms of use. And, and, and in every case where this process has started, um, we found uh, alcohol to be the 800-pound gorilla in every community. Um, and mm -hmm. it, it wasn't something that was much of a surprise to us when we got started early on. We started uh, reaching out to some of the experts here in the United States, the Pan American Health uh, Association, and uh, as well as some of the uh, experts in Latin America who've been studying this. And there was a common thread that they every single one of them told us and you know i can say with certain terms that they said essentially it's a completely unregulated market and they weren't just talking about one or two countries but uh, regionally that latin america was unregulated and and of course as we started doing the work in the communities the communities themselves validated that so it's interesting for each of the countries that CADCA is working it with is it because the their government requested is um, assistance um, from the United States and CADCA is, is helping with prevention. Yeah, and in many cases they've re requested our assistance by name. So as we've been doing this now for for well over a decade, uh, 15, 16 years now, uh, as I mentioned where we first started in Peru, um, uh, like I said, and, and it's not really something that I can point to that uh, it's that, uh, you know, success that we've done to change things. It's what people have done with what we've taught them, right, and applying uh, mm -hmm. key concepts, such as really building a broad-based coalition that has, you know, a minimum of 12 community sectors, which I talked about earlier, where you have all the stakeholders at the table, and by having them at the table, uh, to start developing plans and strategies about uh, what needs to change and how it's going to change over time and how to measure that impact as well. Um, and, and really as a result of community after community, um, you know, taking those processes that they're taught, putting them into practice, it's, they're the ones that are bringing about the change. And, um, and uh, the wonderful thing too, that is the change that they're bringing is there uh, long after our intervention, right? They, these coalitions continue to work. Many of them have been around for well over a decade at this point. And, you know, we, we had a, a short window of opportunity to work with them, but they've taken what they learned and they adapted it uh, to their local context and, and, and put it to work for them to bring about uh, change on these issues. Uh, and really looking at the conditions on the ground and what needs to change how they're going to go about changing it and and who needs to be involved. And that's the same philosophy that you have universally, whether it's a community in, in rural America or a big city in America or um, a little town in Honduras. How has a pandemic um, affected health, alcoholism? I, I know that um, being on the West Coast when COVID hit in March, the emergency departments were empty 
except for the people who <laughs> had an alcohol problem, they, that didn't deter anything. And uh, I saw uh, the very beginning, a lack of supply. I think my very first case in March related to alcohol was a person who drank a bunch of hand sanitizer. And we, you know, it wasn't just that's bad to drink hand sanitizer. It's also, you know, wait, we have, we don't have enough of this <laughs> to go around. Um, and then of course we saw the grocery stores like, you know, answering capitalism by having that in the front of the, the front of the store is, have you seen that problem around the world? So we have seen, you know, something interesting about coalitions, and that's that when a when a crisis occurs, they're able to they have all the key sectors at the table, and just the same kind of strategic planning process I talked about, they can apply to issues that they find themselves in in the moment. And in the past, whether it was war and refugees, and uh, you know, in Iraq by the war in neighboring Syria, where we have a coalition and how they were able to mobilize or to an earthquake in Mexico, we've seen coalitions been able to, to, to shift to address that greatest issue. Um, never seen it though, uh, like we're seeing it now during the pandemic as coalitions around the world uh, have had to shift and in many cases become part of the response to the pandemic. So, um, you know, you're seeing a lot of issues and, and this is not just, uh, this is around the world and, and the United States as well, whether they're doing uh, food drives and food pantries. You'll see that in the U.S. and you'll see it in Senegal uh, to getting the word out about social distancing practices and putting up signage in the community. We've seen coalitions around the world do that as well as collecting and distributing PPE. But we've also found too that coalitions uh, have also seen a broader connection with substance use uh, and other health-related issues such as suicide, mental health, and a whole host of other problems stemmed by um, you know loss of uh, loss of income and coalitions have had to also broaden their capacity and uh, you know work with local experts to what you were talking about before kind of health consequences or mental health issues they're really you know working with their local with their experts and their health departments and other things to, to, to build up their knowledge base and their capacity but they're also supporting their local sectors. Uh, with resources and manpower that they need uh, for direct services, but all in all, keeping their eye uh, focused on substance use too. That uh, hasn't gone away, but some of the new conditions that we've been finding, that I should say coalitions too have been finding and addressing um, as the you know pandemic progresses is you know things like, and we're seeing this U.S. and around the world, things like uh, home delivery service of alcohol. Uh, we're seeing also increase of adult drinking at home with children. Um, in Latin America, we've had a lot of coalitions report uh, that people are drinking in the streets in front of their homes, and they're kind of really going outside uh, to drink in many places. It's summertime there too. Uh, but you've also seen, I mentioned loss of income. You're also seeing a lot of clandestine points of sale of alcohol where people are selling alcohol uh, to supplement that loss of income. Uh, but you also are also seeing a lot of homegrown alcohol, like moonshine, illegal alcohol production, and the sale of it in local communities. Uh, but you've also seen, we've also seen a, a rise in alcohol consumption in, in public spaces. And again, it's kind of like that going outdoors uh, and getting together and formally and people getting together to drink at parks and athletic fields um, and things like that. So in terms of consumption, uh, of alcohol, those are some of the the changes that we've seen. 
Yeah, and the clandestine, the, the illegal alcohol sale, that's worrisome um, to hear as a medical perspective because in the United States during you know times of prohibition, people were uh, making their own alcohol. The medical consequences were things like blindness from methyl alcohol and the, you know, and different types of poisonings that would occur because of that type of alcohol. Um, and actually regulation of the alcohol industry helped for those type of diseases, not for the overall alcohol problem, but it, but it, yeah. So that's disturbing to hear. Um, there's model laws. I don't know what laws that they're, um, are being developed, but it seems like they're kind of mirroring some of the um, the laws that we have in the United States, such as uh, age of being allowed to be sold alcohol. And you mentioned um, social host laws. Um, it'd be interesting if they have those. I I'm, I became familiar with that in January 2015 when my daughter was a student at Poway High School. Um, there was a big party. And fortunately, my, my daughter did not uh, attend the Playboy Bunny theme party for one of her 18-year-old classmates. But at the party, there were kids who became sick and passed out and uh, paramedics were called. And the father, an attorney, he went to jail for uh, allowing uh, alcohol consumption at his house at a big party. And that's an example of a social host law. Um, mm -hmm. I wonder if that's just American thing. Are there Latin American countries who, who have social host laws too? Well, the social hosts like ordinances for, for people, uh, we haven't seen too much of that. Uh, but we've seen, like I said, in some cases, local conditions where uh, people are having uh, you know, alcohol sold at events uh, that are maybe school sponsored events even. Uh, for for example, one case in Brazil, uh, one of our coalitions passed a, a law prohibiting uh, the sale of alcohol at any kind of event uh, like that, that was, uh, you know, sponsored by, by a school where uh, before that was okay. Um, now I will say, just like I saw, I mentioned earlier, some of the the commonalities in terms of commercial access and social access, we've seen some common threads in terms of policy interventions. So we've seen, uh, you know, from country after country, whether it was Dominican Republic, Peru, uh, Brazil, uh, among others, that uh, they focused many of the times on existing policies that just weren't being applied locally. Uh, coalition members also and community members also began to work with local authorities to start uh, visiting uh, alcohol retailers and outlets uh, and, you know, educating them, making them aware of what the law uh, is and also putting up signs about like things like prohibiting the sale of alcohol to minors. Uh, but they've also done other things like conducting responsible beverage service trainings. Uh, they've also uh, done a lot to recognize uh, local businesses that are selling alcohol responsibly uh, and they do a lot of this through um, uh, compliance checks and uh, verification. And in many cases, it's the local residents that are that are going around and observing what's happening and doing it hand in hand with their local authorities. Um, but uh, we've also gotten we've also seen several examples where uh, the coalitions got uh, the uh, local merchants to make pledges that uh, that that not only would they not allow um, the sale of alcohol to minors, but that they wouldn't allow public consumption 
uh, in front of their local businesses and establishments and to put up appropriate signage uh, to, uh, you know, educate the public that that's not permitted around there and to also take the steps that they need to uh, to, to, to keep that from happening. Uh, I mentioned a little bit about uh, local festivals and community festivals and changing the design on those uh, to, uh, to help uh, mitigate access of alcohol to minors. We've seen communities across- Does that Latin. include a Carnival in, uh, in Rio de Janeiro? Are they, uh, well, that, that would <laughs> you be, just uh, think of alcohol in Latin America, you think of Carnival. <laughs> That would be big league. Um, we we haven't been uh, to uh, to Brazil uh, to that part of Brazil yet to Rio de Janeiro, uh, but that would that would be a big one and a great example <laughs> of 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 the kinds of problems that we're talking about, right? If we got into looking deep at uh, how the practices are there, uh, but sure, in some coalitions, I mean that's done throughout the country, and in some of our uh, of our some of our coalitions have you know really. Uh, taken to those kinds of actions. So when you mentioned Brazil right now, the state of Sao Paulo implemented strategies because it's summertime there about not allowing the sale of alcohol in, you know, uh, places where you have a lot of tourism, like at the beach. And so the coalitions and Carnival was essentially canceled this year uh, too. But in the cases of this, uh, you know, they've 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 shut down the the sale of alcohol in those uh, in many of those areas and. Uh, the you know coalitions are doing their part to making sure local alcohol policies are being enforced. Uh, but again, you know the other big thing though that I would mention that just didn't exist before uh, these coalitions were established is that at the end of the day, one of the important things that they're doing is that they're developing uh, you know municipal policies and plans uh, around drugs and alcohol and having a broad-based commission put in place that again puts it on the local agenda, aligns resources to make those plans actionable. And uh, it really is resulting in, in change uh, over time at the communities. And we've seen a number of different examples of this where in Peru, they've passed uh, local ordinances limiting the sale of alcohol, not allowing people to, to consume alcohol in public uh, spaces. Uh, and, um, you know, really ensuring that it's also not just a, a top down with the laws, but that you have a community response and that the communities have a voice and a role uh, to play in that. You know, the the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, NIAAA, has um, really cool uh, calculators and checklists as far as do you have an alcohol use disorder or what is at-risk drinking? I wonder if you bring any of those because I think that that's useful and people like to say like, hey, did I drink too much? And and there's definitions, there's scientific definitions for at-risk drinking, which are different for men and women because men and women are built differently. Uh, women have more percent fat and men are more percent uh, water um, and the alcohol is more in the water of, the, of your body. So for women, it's uh, if you drink more than three drinks at one time or seven times in a week, you're an at-risk drinker. And for men, if you drink more than four drinks, standard, there's a definition of what a standard drink is, um, or 14 um, a week, you're an at-risk drinker. Um, and there's, you know, very clear definitions and calculators. And, you know, I tell that to my patients, like, okay, wait, you're not an alcoholic, but you know, you're yeah. an at-risk drinker, just so you know. <laughs> and I'll, I'll tell you that uh, prior to this work in Latin America, 
uh, I did do a lot of work with uh, migrant farm workers, uh, you know, here in the United States. A lot of it had to do with acculturation as they were recently arrived. And again, kind of talking about the context and the culture, they get here and they don't know the laws, they don't know the practice, they don't know the culture. And, uh, you know, it's important that those efforts uh, are done too, uh, because, uh, you know, it's, um, there's also consequences that can come out of that in terms of certain behavior. And the reason I mention it is that uh, even among migrant populations here too in the United States and uh, even folks coming, you know, and living in countries uh, in Latin America, uh, you know, that notion of problem drinking. And, and again, this goes kind of the, the cultural issues I was mentioning earlier. They don't perceive it. There, there isn't a perception that alcohol is a problem and that's Part of the problem, right? Why? Well, these things just happen, right? Well, you know, these things just happen because people are having, uh, you know, 17 drinks and getting behind the wheel of a vehicle where that should never happen, right? And uh, so there it's is preventable. Uh, it is preventable, exactly. And I think a lot of what uh, these coalitions are trying to get at in the first place is to put that type of responsible behavior and policies and practices in place. So that if you have a bar that is selling alcohol and, you know, they have a responsibility too to not serve that guy 17 drinks and then let him leave your establishment. And, you know, these are kinds of things that we see here in the United States where uh, you have dram shop liability laws. We haven't quite gotten there yet with, but, you know. Wait, wait, what is that? Tell us what that means. A dram shop liability law is if somebody is uh, has, you know, had 17 drinks of alcohol, got behind the wheel of a vehicle and was stopped by a police officer, uh, they can trace back the last point of sale. And the responsibility falls on, you know, that establishment that, uh, that, uh, that uh, you know, let that person leave there. First of all, serving them enough alcohol to get that inebriated. And then second of all, let them walk out of the, uh, the, uh, their establishment. So then there's certain That's, consequences. You have to know when to cut off your customer. Right. And then, so exactly knowing when, and, and that leads back to responsible beverage service training and those types of things. But at, at the end of the day, though, it, there are consequences there with those types of policies or, uh, you know, having their license suspended, which obviously can cost them uh, a, a, a lot of money. And then, or, you know, having to go to training, you know, in terms of, you know, how to mitigate that in your business and establishment. And uh, uh, and like I said, I mean, there's a whole host of policy measures that can be taken, but at the end of the day, it's kind of uh, what we were talking about in the beginning. We can certainly educate people about what decisions that they should make and the limits that they should take uh, in terms of limiting themselves. But in the event that they're not able to do that, it does take a village to ensure that we protect everyone else. And, uh, and, and certain policy measures like that can certainly uh, help to ensure those types of things are happening on a regular basis. That's great. It takes a village and there are a lot of policy um, uh, rules that can be made to, to protect, to protect the public, to make it safer uh, community for everybody and, and for your personal health. And uh, Eric, you certainly are an expert in uh, Latin America and alcohol. Um, is there anything else our listeners should know about? I will say that uh, for me, you know, I mentioned in the beginning, I had uh, uh, was very passionate about my life and experience uh, in Latin America, in Nicaragua specifically, uh, that drove me uh, to, you know, deciding that career-wise I was going to be uh, focused on prevention 
and uh, substance use prevention. For me, a goal was always to get back to Nicaragua, and this is back in those days, to be able to, to bring some of that there. I haven't been able to do that there, but I was never expecting to see all these conditions in so many countries around the world. Uh, so for me, it really has been a blessing to be able to do this, to work for such an amazing organization like CADCA that has allowed me that, which was something that, you know, years ago before I was a professional in the field, that, uh, that, you know, knowing early on that this was something I wanted to do and that I've been able to, to kind of live that dream for the last 13 years and, uh, and to make a difference uh, in communities around the world and empower people to be change agents and then and just being able to, to work with such an amazing organization that really equips everyday people to do amazing things has uh, just been uh, truly a blessing for me and uh, and grateful for the opportunity to get up every day and do it. So I just wanted to, to share that with you as well, uh, because it really, uh, CADCA really does make a difference uh, every day and, uh, and equipping communities to, be, to do amazing things, to be change agents and to set the conditions to really have safe, healthy and drug-free communities. That's great. And, and uh, really appreciate that. And we could see you have a serving heart. Um, and, uh, and I've noticed that a lot about the people who work for CADCA and who are, and really people who are involved in the issues of drugs and addiction, they, they're passionate about it and they have a serving heart. Thank you so much for Fabrizia Barella for her question that framed this episode and for her work at CADCA. I want to uh, wish her a great future and strength in her work. And Eric, to you really, thank you so much for your international outreach, for taking your passion making that a, a lifelong commitment and, and goal and CADCA that allows you to, to do that. And you're obviously a blessed person to have to be doing the things that you love to do. Not many people get to do that. And I wish you the very best uh, in success in what you do. Thank you so much, Dr. Lev. And, uh, and again, thank you for the opportunity to, to be here and to, to share this story with you. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts give you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from CADCA, Community Anti-Drug Coalitions of America. CADCA builds drug-free communities across the United States, U.S. territories, and over 30 countries across the globe. Every day, CADCA trains. If you would like to sponsor a show, we would be honored and grateful. Please contact us at hightruths.com. We want to hear from you. Post a comment or email us about one thing you learned from this program. We thank you for listening and hope you will help our rating by giving us a five-star review. And subscribe so you won't miss any of our information-packed weekly shows. Visit our website, hightruths.com, to submit a question, take a quiz, or download a free prescription for naloxone. Until next week, this is High Truths on Drugs and Addiction. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions, and I am your host, Dr. Oni Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths.